Ave and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a podcast about the rulers of the ancient Roman Empire. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me as always is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, a lecturer in ancient Mediterranean studies at La Trobe University. This is episode XXXV, a pleasant surprise from the Emperor Titus. When we last left Titus, he had made the Roman Empire proud by bringing the city of Jerusalem to its knees. He now returns to Rome, where his father Vespasian has been proclaimed the new emperor. All Titus has to do now is patiently wait his turn. Here's Rhiannon Evans. Titus is our second Flavian emperor, succeeding his father in 79 CE. But there was a story that his reign had been foretold by somebody who studied the appearance of people, a physiognomist, who had uh, looked at him and Britannicus, the son of Claudius. Of course, at the time, Britannicus might be the one thought to succeed to being emperor. Um, But he said that, in fact, Britannicus would not succeed but unexpectedly, surprisingly, Titus would. Now, at this point in the 50s CE, nobody would have thought that the Flavians were going to come to power. Uh, so this this is very prescient, if true, although possibly the kind of thing that people said in retrospect once they knew that the Flavians were going to be a, a long-lived dynasty. And once you're the emperor, it's rather handy to have a prophecy in your back pocket to say, look, this has always been foretold, hasn't it? Yes, and it does underline again something of a problem for the Flavians, which they seem to have managed to spectacularly overcome, which is that they had no birth connections to anybody who had been princeps or emperor before. So when Vespasian first became emperor, what was Titus's reaction? He seems to be extremely loyal. There's a worry that because he's got an army, somebody with an army is always a worry because they can use that army against whoever is meant to be in power. And remember that we are coming after a year of a t- heavy turnover of emperors, the heaviest turnover of emperors that we've ever had in 69. But Titus does not seem to be interested in that because he pledges allegiance to his father. He doesn't use that army. He brings it back. And, and the part of the triumph is Vespasians for the victory in Judea. So what we get with Titus is somebody who seems to fit exactly in with his father's plans. But we do get a very split personality, certainly in Suetonius's telling of him, because in some ways he's not the golden boy that he will become when he's emperor. He's quite a nasty character. And it could be said that he's doing all of this in the service of his father, for example, getting rid of undesirables, because he's given a very high profile role, which is that of Praetorian prefect. Was this a role that he was really well suited for? It sounds like he didn't earn it. It was it was a role given to him. The Praetorian prefect? Yeah. In fact, it's a role that people wouldn't have expected him to take because it would seem beneath him because it's something that previously has only been given to equestrians, not to senators. And the historical reason for this is probably because emperors didn't necessarily trust senators. Okay, So there are all kinds of roles that they will only put equestrians into, like being in charge of important provinces, like Egypt, so that they can keep control of it via the equestrian. So you put an equestrian in charge of the Praetorian Guard because the theory is that they will have fewer aspirations to overturning you. Especially your son who you trust 
at that point. Yeah, like it, there's a lot of discussion about Titus as Praetorian prefect because it's it's not as high up as you might expect for him. You might expect him, him, him to be immediately made co-consul with Vespasian or something like that. The general thought by ancient historians has been that Vespasian needs someone he can trust to be his bodyguard. Mm. There has been some disputing of this recently by uh, ancient historians who say, well, surely he could have found somebody from the equestrian ranks who was trustworthy. And actually, they're kind of overturning that theory that Titus was the man to trust and saying instead, this was a way of keeping control of Titus, putting him into a very prescribed position where he didn't have any real power. His, his allegiance had to be to Vespasian. So it's a way of preventing him from seeking further power. Uh, because everything about his role is he works directly for the emperor, mm. not he's in charge of a rich province or he's in charge of uh, something that's very powerful, like being a consul. I actually would go with the former theory that, that Vespasian needs somebody very close to him who will look after his interests. I'm, I'm not with the conspiracy theorists on this. Considering that he's his father's direct and most logical heir at this point, is he well-liked? Is he trusted? How does he come across in Roman society? Well, ancient sources seem to be unanimous on this, that he was universally hated, yeah. which is a real surprise because this will change radically and it's not the way he's remembered. But he's very heavy-handed as Praetorian prefect. He has no qualms about getting rid of anybody who's not trustworthy. He is cruel, needlessly cruel, he has dinner with a, an aristocrat called Kaikina, and then as soon as Kaikina leaves the room, has him killed. What was that about? Well, apparently Kaikina was implicated in a conspiracy. Of course he would be. But you can always say that, of course. Yeah. You could argue he does what he has to because he has to make sure the Flavian dynasty isn't as short-lived as the previous emperors have been. He mm. doesn't want to last just a little bit longer than Vitellius or somebody like that. So he's he's ensuring the the safety of his father and of his dynasty. He's also unpopular because he has a bad reputation with his personal life. Suetonius and others describe would amount to what we would call basically a playboy. He has big parties, lots of lovers, male and female, an affair with the Judean queen Berenike, which doesn't particularly make him popular. She's brought to Rome and sort of seen as an outsider. And an older woman, right. And an older woman. <laughs> yeah, certainly not somebody who is uh, considered marriage material. And he hangs around with actors who are very low down in the Roman social scale. So he doesn't look like a great prospect as emperor in many ways. You know, Vespasian is doing everything he can to be popular with the Senate and the people and by and large succeeding. And you wouldn't really expect that Titus is going to match up to his father. I like this, um, this line in Suetonius when he describes Titus. He says he's not only unpopular, but venomously loathed. That's a really emotive word that, let's be honest, probably came from Robert Graves rather than Suetonius. But it, it gives a, a, a nice bit of emotion behind it to kind of show just how disliked Titus was at this point. He is, and it's almost a classic case of the father has worked to get power Therefore, the son doesn't have to bother because he's got money and power just by virtue of whose son he is. 
he's actually so bad that he's openly seen as somebody who's going to be a second Nero. And of course, there's no worse insult at this point, especially because Vespasian has been working very hard to continue everything that's negative about Nero's reputation, that he's extravagant and wasteful and his personal life is disgusting. And that your son is being compared to this man who you're trying to disparage and to replace and be better than must have been a worry for Vespasian. Yeah, yeah, especially they're coming up in prophecies when they say that kind of thing. So they're taken quite seriously. Yes. And even his appearance is a little bit more like Nero's than it is like Vespasian's. He doesn't look like the hardened soldier, even though he clearly has been a very effective soldier. But, you know, he's got kind of longer, curlier hair and and, a slightly fussier look about him than Vespasian always reminds me of, you know, my granddad when he was 80. He looks like he's been through life and he's been toughened by it. And he doesn't really care about trying to look pretty and cover up his flaws. So let's touch on on the women in Titus's life, uh, who, as much as you can say about Titus, are almost just a footnote because he's married early on, isn't he? A few times. He's married twice. Yeah. And his marriage to Arachina Tertulla results in the birth of a daughter who's called Julia. You can see what the Flavians are trying to do by using the name Julia, make connections back to the Julian family. There's no reason to use it within their family. And you also mentioned the Jewish queen, Berenike, who was a love interest of his later on. But there was never really an attempt by him that we know of to have another empress in his life later on, was there? Uh, no, but then, of course, he's he's only emperor for two years. You mm. don't know what he would have done, I suppose, if he'd lasted longer because he does have a daughter and you would assume that the desire would be to produce a son as well. On the other hand, he has a brother who's getting ready to take over from him. So I don't know what to say about that. Yeah, it's really it, sad. Yeah. I would love to say more about the women, but there just is not very much. Although the Flavian women have the best crazy hairstyles. <laughs> so Titus sounds like the worst PR disaster waiting to happen. So when he becomes emperor, when Vespasian dies in 79 CE, what happens? It sounds like the flick of a switch. It does seem like a sudden change. And this is stated in both Suetonius and Tastas, all, all the sources we have. So I, I think we can assume that that is reliable, although it seems quite unexpected to me. But it seems like the responsibility of being emperor just leads him to realize he needs to change. And he does exactly that. He gets rid of all of his disreputable friends. He sends Berenike away. He decides that he's going to be in control of himself, something that's very important to the Romans in the public profile of of a commander, of a leader. We consider him to be a good emperor. We do, and I've always thought that part of the reason for that is that he doesn't last very long. Yeah, we're given two years to get But of course, you could mess up your reputation in two years. Certainly Caligula managed it in four. Mm. So if he had continued along that path, then presumably he would have been seen as one of these emperors who indulges himself rather than caring about the empire and the people of Rome. But Titus does seem to make this change. He becomes someone who's generous, who's responsible. He had the kind of air of being a very generous emperor, wasn't he? Absolutely. And he benefits from the fact that his father has been building a massive arena right in the middle of Rome. Ah, the Colosseum. Yes, which they call the Flavian Amphitheatre, so their family name is all over it. Mm. And of course, 
Vespasian dies the year before the Colosseum can be opened. So lo and behold, Titus gets to open it. And although he never disguises the fact that Vespasian's responsible for founding it, he's going to get all the kudos, all the great display. You know, you have days and days and days of gladiatorial combat, bring in all of these exotic wild beasts. It's like a big party in Rome. And Rome has never seen a building like this. So he benefits from that very much so. He also builds a bath building, another public building, which, uh, again, like the Colosseum, is built on the land from Nero's palace. So this is a way of stamping the Flavians over what was Nero's private residence and could be depicted as something he'd taken from the people. They're giving it back to the people. And the bath building seems to be important in his reputation, not just because it's something he gave to the people, but that he actually made use of it himself. And he didn't, as celebrities sometimes do now, he didn't close it all down when he was using it. The public was still allowed in. So that was his way of keeping in touch with the common people, wasn't it? Exactly. And he also does this in the sporting arena, so in the Coliseum and at the circus, at the races, in that he has a team and he goes along and supports them, but, you know, there's not favouritism. So he, he sort of frames himself as one of the ordinary people. At the same time that he's giving them all of these benefactions, he's also there with them on the same level as them. So that's a very clever way of playing that. He's also very generous on a personal level, we're told, that if somebody came with a request to Titus, he would always consider it. So you wouldn't get an automatic no or you wouldn't get, no, you don't have a right to see the emperor. And he maintained any grants that Vespasian had put in place, that previous emperors had put in place. Uh, and Suetonius makes clear that most emperors would say, well, I'll think about this and I might cancel it. Mm. Titus just gave a blanket. Everybody gets what previous emperors have agreed to. Previous emperors or just his father? That's not made clear in Suetonius. Okay, because if it's just his father, I can kind of see why that's going on. But he also had this thing where he had a personal kind of mission to do at least one nice thing for somebody per day, it seems. I seem to remember a... Oh, well, there's there's a quip that appears uh, in Suetonius again that uh, he considered a day wasted where he hadn't managed to give something to somebody. He's got this line, which I actually think is quite cheesy, that um, <laughs> that at the end of the day he will regret it and consider it a day that you know has been a black one for him if he hasn't managed to give something away. I'm being a bit cynical about it, but it does show that that is his reputation to be a giver to the people, not somebody who's using this position to um, forward his own interests. And I think in a way. Titus really shows us the broad distinction that ancient writers make between emperors. Are they somebody who's there to rule for the, the greater good? Of course, quite what that is, you could debate, and, and the writers have their own uh, agenda there. Or are you going to be somebody who abuses this position for your own enjoyment? So we've got a massive crisis during the time that Titus is emperor with the eruption of Mount Vesuvius and uh, really the, the fallout that happens is a response to that. So what is Titus like in damage control? We don't hear an awful lot about this, but it is all good. So as we know, two towns and other areas are completely destroyed by this. We have a huge number of deaths. Pompeii in, and, sorry. In Pompeii and Herculaneum. Herculaneum, there we go. Titus is very generous as we'd expect by now, he gives a lot of money to the people who survive and for um, for them to build elsewhere. 
And he does something quite clever with the the fact that there have been a lot of deaths. So anyone who's died intestate, who doesn't have heirs, he says that their money should be plowed back in to help the survivors. Mm. So he's not going to take anything from that money. He's actually giving his own money too, but he's making use of funds that are left over from the people who've unfortunately died. So he's being very fair about that. And a year later, he's got another disaster to cope with with yet another fire in Rome which yes. seem to be quite regular. They're, they're endemic. And when we think of the Great Fire, I suppose we think of 64, but there are lots of others. And the one in 80 CE is very destructive. And this is a test for an emperor. Is he going to step up to the mark? One of the things that Nero did step up to, indeed, and perhaps isn't given enough credit for. And Titus does the same. He provides lots of funds. Um, unlike at Pompeii, there needs to be rebuilding, of course, within the city of Rome. He gives of his own as well because there are temples destroyed by this fire and he uses decorations from his own house. This is a great symbol to mm. be put into the temples. So the temples that have been destroyed, that have been magnificent and made magnificent again by direct sacrifice from the emperor. So every emperor has to deal with conspiracy against them at, in some way or another. And even though Titus only has two years as emperor, I'm sure that's more than enough time for conspiracy to rear its head. So how does he deal with it? Well, very differently than we might expect, given that when Vespasian was emperor, he'd dealt with them quite ruthlessly. He really doesn't seem interested in trying to come down hard on conspirators or even in finding out about them because one of the main ways you might find out about conspiracies is through informers. Informers are notorious at Rome and hate it because they might well inform on people who are doing relatively innocent things. And Titus expels them from Rome. He puts them into exile. Figures who've been despised since the days of Tiberius who actually, you know, get paid for informing. He's not interested in listening to them. And this makes him quite popular. When he does find out about a conspiracy, he says one between uh, very two highborn men uh, who, and it's brought to his attention, he doesn't punish them. He just warns them off and says, you know, you're not fated to be emperor, so why are you interested in this? He doesn't punish them in any way. You would expect him to execute them, but he's not interested. He says to them, what can I give you instead, doesn't he? Yeah, which seems amazing. I guess the idea is if people are happy, then they won't bother trying to conspire against their emperor. Oh, it makes me want to conspire against the emperor to get a promotion, though. <laughs> yeah, it's reverse psychology. And, of course, the biggest threat, which all of the ancient writers see and point out, is Titus's brother, mm. uh, Domitian, who seems to spend the whole of, even before Titus is emperor, but certainly the whole of his reign conspiring against him and just sitting in umbrage that he hasn't been made emperor and claiming that Vespasian's will has not been properly satisfied, that there were presumably powers that he was meant to be given that he hasn't been, that he was even meant to be co-emperor. Emperor. He's not happy about this secondary position, apparently, but Titus refuses to take action against his brother. He's just not interested. Titus is well aware of the fact, though, that his brother would rather see him dead. Apparently he? so, yes. It's, it's... So it's like the, the worst kept secret in Rome <laughs> at this point, I'm sure. Yes, uh, that's, that's certainly the way that Suetonius and Tacitus represent it. I, I do have a, a slight uh, bit of hesitation about being quite so sure that Domitian is conspiring because in hindsight, 
Domitian, as we will see, is very much a hated emperor and Mm. any bad deed that can be put on his shoulders will be. So let's talk about the death of Titus. Uh, He died in 81 CE Mm -hmm. of a fever, so natural causes. Yep, it's natural causes. Nobody ever suggests otherwise, despite the fact that Domitian is hovering around. Look, if they could pin it on him, they would. Absolutely. The, The historical tradition is so negative about Domitian, but Domitian's not there. We don't know what Titus died of, but there's no suggestion of foul play. But he did die in the same house that his father did. He did, yes, which seems quite neatly rounded up. Yes. It's a bit hard to say what legacy he kind of built up with only being emperor for two years, but uh, it seems to be quite a good one. Maybe that's in comparison to how his brother goes, but he's remembered quite well. He's remembered very, very fondly. Mm. He is deified after his death. And he is one of the emperors who you can't say much bad about, uh, which it helps that it's only two years. Yeah. It's easier not to blot your copybook in two years. But he's now died without an heir, which makes it good that his brother's around, I suppose. Yes, he has only a daughter. So it's natural that Domitian will be hailed as emperor, which happens almost immediately probably a bit of trepidation amongst the ranks and wondering quite how it's going to fall out. Suetonius records Titus's last words as being that he only has a single sin lay on his conscience. So something that he regrets. Yes, it's a very dramatic, presumably close to last statement, uh, very cinematic, I think, and raises all kinds of questions. Presumably the onlookers were wondering about it because Suetonius doesn't know what it is. Uh, What could it be, though? Well, various things are brought up. Uh, It could be an affair with Domitian, with his brother's wife, who's called Domitia, confusingly. This doesn't really ring true unless it happened before he was emperor. Um, But there's that great painting, isn't there, of the triumph. He's kind of giving Domitia a bit of a look. Ah, okay. So there's clearly a reference to that there. There is, there is. The reason Suetonius decides that it's probably not that is quite psychologically interesting in that he has such a low opinion of Domitian's wife that he says if she denied it and if she'd done it she wouldn't have bothered because she had no shame Mm. so she'd have just said sure I had an affair with Titus which I think is quite funny Robert Graves actually has a note at this point in his translation of Suetonius uh, which I'll read out Graves says, perhaps he repented his impious entry into the forbidden Holy of Holies at Jerusalem. It was a capital crime for a Roman even to trespass in the court of Israel. The Jews, at any rate, ascribed his early death to this cause, and Queen Berenike must have reproached him with the act. Perhaps, on the other hand, the story of his incest with Domitia may have been true. Okay, so that's a note from Robert Graves on Suetonius. It's not what Suetonius says. I don't regard it as very likely that that, that, that would, would have been Titus's mindset mm. because this represents his greatest victory. And I'm sure it's true and it would make very good psychological sense for the Jews to attribute his early death to this because of the, the horrors that have been committed against them. But it doesn't strike true to me that a Roman emperor would be thinking in that way. Even if it's along religious grounds, which is what Graves is suggesting, there's far more at stake for a Roman military leader here. It doesn't strike me as true, but 
You know, as Suetonius says, we don't know why. People at the time did not know why. There was debate about it, about what this one regret might have been. And so it's left very, very mysterious. So it's open to all of our theories, I guess. That's Dr. Rhiannon Evans, lecturer in Ancient Mediterranean Studies at La Trobe University, and you've been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes. Please leave a review there and tell your friends about it. Tune in on our other podcast, When in Rome, where the most recent episode looks at the monument to the victory over Jerusalem, the Arch of Titus. We've got a Facebook page where you can come and join in the conversations, and you can follow both myself and Rhiannon on Twitter, Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans, and I'm at Nightlight Guy. In the next episode of Emperors of Rome, we reach the final emperor for the short-lived Flavian dynasty, the Emperor Domitian, who seems to be pretty determined to just ruin it all for everyone, except Domitian. But until then, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening. You're going to enjoy Domitian, aren't you? Domitian's great. Are we going to get as far as him killing flies? Probably not. Uh, yeah, I think we do, yeah. That was like a whole page in Suetonius. <laughs> you could make a horror movie out of Domitian, couldn't you? That's the kind of thing that a psychopath would do in a horror movie. Yeah, it would be. It'd be a little quirk that they have, you know, lotion on the skin, unless oh, before they get the hose again, he'd be there catching flies. With... Oh, the horror. Yeah.